Hello, and welcome to All Things Marketing and Education. My name is Ilana Leone, and I've devoted my career to helping education brands build their brand awareness and engagement. Each week, I sit down with educators, edtech entrepreneurs, and experts in educational marketing and community building. All of them will share their successes and failures using social media, inbound marketing or content marketing, and community building. I'm excited to guide you on your journey to transform your marketing efforts into something that provides consistent value and ultimately improves the lives of your audience. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of All Things Marketing and Education. This week, I'm really excited to be sitting down with Daylene Long. Audience, you are in for a treat today. I'm not just saying I'm excited. I know I say that with every single speaker, and I truly am. I feel really blessed to be able to have these very smart, humble people in my network. But Daylene's got a lot of wisdom to share. So let's talk a little bit about Daylene and we'll get into the meat of the podcast. But Daylene founded Catapult X, which is a market and product development company. And she consults with STEM, the STEM industry to grow data in particular. So in this work, she's partnered with lots of companies, Pivot Interactive, Smithsonian Science in the Classroom, Amplify, BioRad, Mind Labs, which recently got a $1 million phase two SBIR grant. So she has, I mean, what's nice is like people like Daylene and myself, we work with lots of companies and it gives you a real deep perspective of the industry. Um, before that, Daylene spent a significant amount of time, almost uh, 15 years, at Vern Vernier as chief marketing officer and co-owner. I don't know why I always um, trip at that name. <laughs> yeah, it's Vernier. People want to say they want to say Vernier, but it's not Vernier. You know, I get into the French. I'm like Vernier, <laughs> and I'm like stop. <laughs> well, while Daylene was there, she developed really everything on the ground for marketing and comms, and that that was so impressive to read. So, marketing, public relations, educator outreach, and she personally helped grow the company from 20 million in revenue to over 50 million. Um, Daylene is also known for the educators' best or pick educators pick best of STEM awards. So I call it the best of STEM awards and the educators pick um, where she works with organizations really big and small and it helps them increase their brand awareness. And she reaches hundreds of thousands of science and STEM educators through this. And I followed her journey in these last couple of years with it. And it's truly amazing what she's been able to do. So we'll talk a little bit about STEM in our podcast too. Um, I personally, Daylene, I think I officially met you through the community, right? I didn't know you before, right? No, we met through the community. Annie Galvin-Tyke um, invited me into the community, and that's where we met. Yeah, and for um, context for the listeners, a little bit before the pandemic started, I felt alone being an agency owner and just said, let me start a small community. And it really wasn't even my idea. I was just reaching out to other like-minded women in ed tech, and they said, we need something similar too. So we kind of all collectively got together. It was me, Jen Gibson, um, Kate Tolnai, uh, Michelle Spencer, and, and just said, hey, let's start something. Let's start something on Slack so we can just have some support. And so this is it's still a very small community of women in ed tech kind of just rowing our own boats and trying to make sure the tide doesn't capsize us, especially when it came to the pandemic. And I think 
everyone that has been invited to it is so knowledgeable, but especially you, Daylene, is you are so kind and you're so willing to share and help others. The selflessness I see from you and like no politics, you're just like, how can I help? You have a smile. And I, I will say if it, if I have to be honest, it wasn't, if it wasn't for people like you, Daylene, in this community where you're sharing and helping unconditionally during the pandemic, I don't think LCG may have not survived the pandemic itself. And it was just so hard for all of us, you know? You know, it goes both ways, too. I find that this community is wonderful for just supporting one another. But there's some great brains in this group that that we throw questions out there. But what I love is sometimes people will say, you know what, let me think about that for just a little bit. And then they come back with something and they come back with something from their experience. And um, the other thing I love is that we're all very teacher centric. We're all very in this for the students. We're in it for the teachers. And even though we're all business owners, I hear that every time. Um, I see that when we post questions, when we write about things. And that's the other thing I really love about that community is I feel like we're like-minded. Yes, yes. So I just want to say I can't thank you enough, Daylene, for being just such a good human. So like every time I think of you, I smile. I think of us having ISTE and having those fancy drinks at the brunch table. Um, so I am excited to get into all of your wisdom. I will say that today we are going to talk about all things STEM um, we're going to get into things about equity in K-12 education and what that specifically means to educators and all of you ed tech folk listening. And then we're going to get into some data and brand stuff, too. So we'll see how it meanders. But this is an episode not to be missed. There's going to be so much good stuff. And I want to officially welcome Daylene to All Things Marketing and Education. Thank you. I'm very happy to be with you today. Yay. Well, Let's start with your bread and butter. Let's start with STEM. And STEM is a huge topic, I know. But given your background, I'd love to start here and see where your passion is and where we go. But I'd love to know, like, you've been in the industry for a very long time. You now are in the consultant side, so you work with multiple companies, but you were in-house for 15 years. You work with a bunch of companies within the best of STEM. But so you are immersed more than I think anyone I know within STEM. So what are some STEM concepts or developments that you are most excited about right now? And that could be like, maybe it's changed after the pandemic or maybe it stayed the same or I'd love to know the evolution, but like, what are you most excited about right now? You know, there's really a few things. And I also have a son that uh, is an engineering major and so it's been industry, interesting on the industry side of things to th see trends, but then to kind of see those translated in the classroom or in the university. And one of the things that I see right now that I think is really interesting is the integration of computer science in science classrooms, in English language arts, in all different types of subjects in the classroom. And it was controversial for a while. Um, there, are, there are two different ways this could have gone. Uh, and it's still out there as to how it's going to evolve. But 
there are some states that have advocated for computer science to be a separate course that counts as a science class. And there's another group that's out there that says, no, it's a new literacy that's developing that the, the students of today are going to need in the jobs of tomorrow. And it should be integrated as, um, as a literacy within that framework. And I see it pushing a little bit more towards being integrated in the classroom and in the science classroom. And I like that direction a lot, personally. I see a trend too with data science becoming more of a subject in K-12. It's there've been more data science classrooms at the university level for a while, but I see it going into K-12 more. And the reason this excites me is because it's twofold. The first is that there are going to be a lot of jobs in data science in 20 years, in 30 years. And so preparing students for, with, for that, I think is important. Yeah. The second Sorry to interrupt. You were just, I, I was going down memory lane a little bit. And when I was in um, grad school at Cal, I had a data science teacher and he would say, list any company and I'll tell you what business they're in. List anyone. And he's just like kind of a bold <laughs> in your face kind of lecture. And, you know, we're like Boeing. He's like a data company, you know, like all of these companies. And, and really the back, his, his point was, is the backbone of every single business to be competitive is data. And you need to have data scientists really understanding and providing insights so you can stay competitive and really understand what your audience wants, but also what is the market willing to pay and finding that magic middle. But it was just really funny. It was like flashing back. And sometimes the people in the video podcast will see me like look to the side. And that means I'm thinking. <laughs> um, the other thing with it that's important too, not everybody's going to be a data scientist, right? Um, and not everybody's going to have data science in their job, but students of today need to know how to gather evidence, how to interpret data, how to draw meaning from data, and how to see when something's not good data. And they're going to need to know that just to live in the world that we live in, because we've got climate change. We've got um, in politics, we've got people not knowing what's real and what's not real and, and not being able to evaluate properly. So in terms of just building this next generation of, of data scientists that and citizen scientists, that's the other thing. Citizen science is going to be a very important part of the kids' future because we're leaving them a world where they're going to have to deal with climate change. We just are. Yeah. And I, I think just to, to recap your answers and get a little deeper, the two things you said you're most excited about is the trend of integration and availability and access of data science in the classrooms. And then also the integration of computer science into core curricula. And I know we didn't deep into that, like, but I think that if you weren't in that camp, I was going to be like, I'm in the integration camp because I, I do feel like it is a tool in the toolbox that people should be familiar with. And it can bring learning to life in ways that 
you never thought possible. And I've worked on projects recently with companies trying to do that. And it's amazing when you see computer science embedded into things that you would never think of, like English language arts and what they can do with that. Right. And for the ed tech folks out there, too, one of the things that I discovered, too, is it's a lot of the business teachers that are teaching it as well in K-12. And so even though um, computer science, you would think there'd be a computer science teacher, it's, it's these business teachers that are teaching it as well, which I thought was just fascinating and definitely something that the ed tech folks need to consider when they're doing product and market development, that that's a voice of the customer that we have to listen to. Yeah, and the integration of uh, computer science and STEM in general, you have an opportunity. What I've seen people do in terms of vendors come in is they use it in a way to bring learning to real life. So like maybe in math class, we're going to build an entire city, but you got to use computer science plus math concepts. And that is how the real world works. That's why I'm so about the integration, because the more that we silo subjects, the more people go out to work and go, okay, I'm just going to do science. It's like, no, no, you use critical thinking, you use physics, you use English, <laughs> all of the things. And I think we're well positioned to integrate computer science into it because um, more schools have been integrating engineering into the science classroom for the past what, 10 years since the National Framework on Science Education came out. And I mentioned my son earlier, and what I saw in the classroom with him was just a beautiful integration of, here's the science topic we're teaching, but engineering is really an applied science. And so then they would build something with that knowledge that they had. And it just gave such a well-rounded education to it. And then I think if you add some programming into that, if you add some... Um, being able to build something digitally into that, I think, I think that that's what's preparing kids for the for their futures, for their jobs, for to be good citizen scientists. Yeah, and I wonder. So we've recently education has gone through some crazy ups, crazy downs. The pandemic turned everything upside down. I'm wondering from your vantage point that you're working with lots of different companies, what were the trends you saw? Like how did, you know, did STEM get talked about and emphasized in different ways through the pandemic? And then where where is it now in the mix of all the priorities of even just legislation? There's things moving and shaking there. But how do you feel like it's changed since all this stuff has happened? There were really two pushes that I saw. Um, I'm on the Council of State Science Supervisors, and I'm an affiliate member. And most of my role there is really just to listen. And one of the things that I heard and saw was during the pandemic, there was a lot more of a push towards, okay, students are at home. We still want them to do hands-on science. So what does that look like? And they were solving for those problems. and with some states and some districts, that meant that they would do an activity, but they would try to use whatever kids had in the home. But that gets into some equity issues right there because we can assume everybody has a glass or, a, or whatever, fill in the blank, 
but it really exposed that some kids are dealing with very deep issues. Then, you know, we all saw too that there were more companies who were making the internet broadband available to more students so that everybody had more of that. And I think that was a huge shift in education that is going to stay. And I think it's a huge shift in what's going to be possible. Um, we also call, saw companies like Pivot Interactives who came in and said, okay, so how do we make this equitable for teachers? And they took some experiments with real data and real lab setups and created platforms where the analysis tools are actually embedded into that. So now if you've got a district where everybody does have broadband access in one way or another, those activities allow students to, I'm gonna back up. Um, those activities are designed that they can be done in conjunction with hands-on experiments, but also if a kid's been out sick and had COVID, they can still learn the same concepts in a different time frame. So I think that I think that STEM was talked about a lot during the pandemic, but it was how do we teach these standards where we can't bring them into the lab? And how do we teach these concepts when they learn them best hands-on? College was different. I don't know if your audience addresses college or not, but college was a little bit different if you want to perspective on, on that. Sure, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. What I did about 20 interviews of college professors and how they were handling the pandemic and the need for labs. And they did some really smart things that I also think will stick and stay. A lot of them reduced their lab time to two hours. Now, when I was in college, our lab periods were always three hours and that was our time block. And that gave us time to ask questions of our professor or the TAs or the lab assistants so, or and those kinds of things. But what they started doing with the pandemic was they said, okay, there can only be this number of students in a lab. There can be, we can only have them in there for two hours. So let's whiteboard everything in advance so that the students know exactly what they're doing when they come in and we answer questions when they, before they come in. So when they enter the lab, they're ready to go. They have everything they need and they're not fumbling around asking questions that just have to do with prep and setup. Um, in addition to whiteboarding it, some of them would use simulations to get students ready for the lab experience. And, and the professor would tell them you need to accomplish A, B, and C before you come into the lab. You're only gonna have two hours. That's what you're restricted to. And that's how they solved a lot of those problems. I, I thought that was just fascinating. And I would say over half of the professors that I spoke with plan to keep these systems in place 
afterwards because the labs just went more smoothly. Yeah, and that's a hint of like, it's not traditional flipped learning, but it's really like what what makes the most sense to get them prepped and give them that foundation. So like you said, it hit the ground running too. And right. I think that's a really good trend, like really trying to figure out I think if anything, the pandemic really forced us to figure out what is each medium like space-wise best at? How can we leverage the different unique benefits and cons? You know, like there's real big cons about they can't necessarily do a lab at home for all the reasons, equity, things that you talked about, but they can do some asynchronous prep work, right? That's specifically focused on getting them ready for the in-class assignment that they have to do physically in person. So I, I really loved that shift I saw as well as really I don't know if we were all, because we never had that option prior. We were never like, oh, home, this, that. But with what you said about the trend of the internet being a little bit more available, it allows us to do that now. And and that's a big shift, I would say. I agree. And, you know, we all know that the pandemic was very difficult on a lot of populations, especially teachers and students. If we're going to look at the good that came out of it, the access to broadband so that more students can learn asynchronously has been one of the shining stars that came out of it and that I think has fundamentally changed our market. For your ed tech listeners, I think that we all acknowledge that Ed tech doesn't change very quickly. We, we can come up with great ideas that are research backed, that are proven, but making a true change is difficult. The pandemic forced us into it, unfortunately, uh, or fortunately. It's yeah, the- I guess what I'm hearing you say is that, because we do have a lot of guests on this show saying, you know, unfortunately we are, we are seeing, and I don't like the term backsliding, but like they're going back sometimes to traditional ways to teach in the classroom just because it's a little conflicted. And one of our episodes with Rochelle, who's an educator, um, a classroom educator, she said she had two voices in her head. Like she's here teaching, but she's like, well, should I teach the way I used to teach because I'm in this physical space and it's reminding me to teach this way? Or should I teach virtually or like which which is better? And so it gets kind of like Jekyll and Hyde, a kind of confusing in your head. Um, and what she is, I think, and most people, even Monica Burns on the show talked about a little bit of people going back to traditional status quo, because, you know, when they went back into the classroom, they said, hey, things are, quote unquote, back to normal student testing, let's go. And so we saw that move. But what I'm hearing you say is that within the world of STEM, there's a little bit more sticking. And that can be optimistic. I totally agree. We are also seeing in science and STEM teachers that missed being able to do the hands-on experiments and missed being able to have that um, face-to-face engagement in a lab setting. So I would say that there's that trend as well. But I also think that there's this other layer that has been added to it where simulations or video-based learning 
or augmented reality is something that is addressed a fundamental need because there are students out there that do get sick for long periods of time or do have a loss in their family or um, learn better in different environments. And so what came out of the pandemic is more choices for teachers, which is good. Uh, it's, boy, we're, we put a lot on teachers these days. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, when we think about the future of STEM, uh, maybe 10 years down the road, 20 years down the road, like given, I mean, we've had a very big anomaly of something that happened that we can't predict is going to happen again. But where do you feel like the future of STEM is headed in education and or like, what do you hope? Like, you know, if you could design K-12 STEM, how different yeah. would it be? I don't know that it would be, well, I think that there's going to be more choices for educators. And I think that that's a good thing because they're being asked to differentiate instruction for all the kids in their class. And so the more choices that they have, if they can come in and say, you know what, my kids learn best when they they do a simulation and a hands-on activity in the same time. But I've got this other student who needs um, who needs to be able to work on these things from home and come in and collaborate with an online lab team. So I think the future of STEM education is just having more research-based ways to teach students so that we can reach all students, because we know that we haven't. There's research that's been done that has said that if you don't reach a child by the time they are in fourth or fifth grade with the attitude of, I'm good at science, I'm good at math, I like science, I like math, then you may have lost them. And so it's that early that we have to get them interested and connected to the real world. So I guess to answer the question about what would I dream that it would be, it would be that teachers have easy to implement options that are research-based where they can differentiate instruction and that it doesn't take them forever to do so because we know teacher time is, is critical and we want them working with students um, and using their time that way. Yes, yes. And I heard you say things like bring it to real world, make it exciting, make engage the student with the stuff that they're interested in. I heard you say personalization. Um, and right. then really want to emphasize making science and STEM accessible to all genders, all socioeconomic backgrounds, all races and colors of students. There's some really disturbing trends. And I think that we've seen some movement of emphasis with girls in STEM and, and other things, but we've got a ways to go. And I find that what you talked about with the fourth or fifth grade, I was like, wow, <laughs> that's so true. That is so true because if you don't instill confidence and belief and they, if they don't have a foundation, it comes to the point where they just 
they start creating limiting beliefs of themselves, you know? So I was that student. And um, when I was a sophomore in high school, I didn't think I was good at math. And I had a teacher just for one year, John Justino. And he, he said, you're good at math. He said, but you've moved around a lot. So you've missed some holes here and there. If we take the moment to, to fill in this skill and this skill and this skill, you're going to be amazed. And so that's what we did. And I thought, oh, he's right. This is what I have been missing. I do think uh, mathematically, I do think logically. Um, I loved story problems, but he managed to shift that for me by just acknowledging that I'd moved around a lot. And math is a scaffolded subject. And so if you miss certain rungs on the ladder, it makes it more difficult. Um, so there are those just fabulous teachers out there that take that time to change a kid's life. Yeah. And it's, uh, I know that there's a, a good, a lot of contentiousness around growth mindset, but it really does. When you were talking, remind me of a little bit of that. It's just like, now you just haven't had the access and you haven't had the chance to really take the time to understand because you've moved around. You haven't had the practice. You know, and with growth mindset, I'm oversimplifying this. So all of you people that are going to write to me afterwards, but it's really about having that. Okay, let's try. Let's try. Let's put the work in. It's not that you're inherently smart or not smart. It's how much time and effort you have put into this. And I try to tell myself that over and over again when I get stuck on data science and all the things that I've limited myself and beliefs for. So, you know. It's interesting too. I was um, on the board of a nonprofit for a, for a long time, and we developed a program called STEM Connect. I was actually one of the the, um, the founding board members on that. And so, just a quick story on this: we would go into classrooms and do hands-on activities with students, and we went into one that's walking distance from my home that had a lot of different languages that were spoken in that classroom, and one of the most moving moments for me was the teachers kept their, they kept the kids in the same table groups that they were set up in just to make it easy. And this teacher was just amazed because when it came to this hands-on activity, her table that is typically the lower performers were really amazingly collaborating with one another. They didn't all, they weren't all fluent in English. Um, but they were trying things and failing and then doing it again. But her table of overachievers that usually did really well on everything, they got stuck. They, and it wasn't because they weren't smart, because clearly they were, but they were also kind of afraid to fail and reiterate and iterate again. And that's one of the top skills that STEM teaches us about life is that you have to be willing to fail and try again and try again until you get to where you want to be. 
Yes. And that is, is truly the magic. And I, I appreciate you sharing that experience. And I've had similar experiences where I've been in classrooms that one of my jobs was to go into classrooms and just be an observer. And I would observe all of the distractions going on. So anytime that some a student got up, anytime a student yelled, sometimes a student would hit, sometimes, you know, like all of the things you can think of, somebody on their phone, watching the Warriors game, whatever it may be. And I would just tally, 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 tally. I couldn't imagine learning actually happened with all these distractions. But when we started integrating in computer science into the classroom and they were thinking differently. Like you said, they weren't used to being in groups and trying to help each other and, and not have a ton of instruction and just try to figure it out with each other. I saw the most unengaged students that were literally sleeping in the back of the class come together and go, oh, I can fix this. Or, oh, let me try. Oh, I don't know how to do it. And they would get frustrated, but they would help each other. It was just magical to see. It really is. It, it's an amazing thing. And I think that our educators out there have just done such a wonderful job of taking what was the national framework on science, building out new state standards and really integrating that into learning so that science is 100% taught differently than the way that I learned it when I was in school. Let's take a quick segue to the educators listening and when this will be launching, we'll be kind of in the middle of back to school. They might be kind of settling in, but something that science teachers and really all teachers, they tr struggle with is trying to effectively teach the standards in a engaging, applicable way to the students. And do you want to talk a little bit about the science standards in particular, because those are different than the other standards. And if you are an educator, I know this is a hard question, but how do you go about trying to make sure that you're covering what you need to do, but also engaging the students? And that's so hard. It is hard. There's been a lot of really wonderful work that's been done around phenomenon-based teaching and learning. And what I mean by that is that a science standard, um, let's say you're teaching force and motion, that a science standard needs to connect to students in their world. And so it might look different in Beaverton, Oregon, than it does in Chicago, but there's a lot more resources out there that are phenomenon-based where they take a physical, they take something that happens in nature and break it apart and teach the, the standards that way. And it allows teachers to really engage students more. Because when you're learning abstract theories, and sometimes for some people, it's different. For some people, physics is abstract and chemistry is abstract or biology is so integrated, it's confusing. But when you take and stop and think about what is the natural phenomenon that's going on here? Do you guys see this in every spring? Do you see an algae bloom on your lakes every spring and wonder why that happens? Or do you, um, if you're in a northern state, do you see the aurora borealis and, and breaking apart what that means? So what I think is just amazing that's happened since 
the standards have changed is this big shift towards phenomenon-based learning. And it's it's equity-based. It is really about getting students who might not have been interested in science because maybe their parents um, weren't interested in science or they didn't come from an engineering family or whatever that is, but getting all students interested in thinking about the world and why things are happening the way they are. Yeah. It's almost like when you were talking, thinking about, like, I go back to even my sixth grade and stuff like that, where they were showing basic reactions of like, you know, when an apple, you know, you bite into an apple and it starts changing its characteristics and things like that. You're like, uh, okay. You know, it's old news. I've seen it so long as a kid. Right. But it's almost like sparking or re-sparking that curiosity you had as a child and really understanding life a little bit more deeply. And that phenomenon based teaching, I see work and I see tons of resources out there, teachers. So just, you know, go out, follow the major brands that you get scientific supplies for. They all have free activities. A lot of the companies that Daylene worked for, like the Smithsonian in the classroom, they all have free resources that can spark ways to reorient your teaching to say, what if I can start with something, spark that curiosity, and then make sure that they are understanding the standards behind that phenomenon. Right. And there's both free resources out there like FET, and most teachers know that FET's available. Um, There are resources like Pivot Interactives. Gizmos has been around for um, a long time, and they've got things that are based in phenomenon-based learning. Amplify does wonderful work with phenomenon-based teaching and learning. And so there's a lot, there's a lot that's out there. If it's not embedded in your current curriculum that your school has adopted, you can, you can take what you have and augment and supplement so that you are pulling in topics and things that happen in the world that are, that are relevant to students. Yes. So I want to get into two more things before we call it. It's always feel like I can talk to you forever. And I'm like, shoot, we only have so much time. But one thing I want to quickly go into is the ed tech companies. So we've, we've talked a little bit to the educators itself. We've talked a, a bit higher level on the trends in STEM. But what are the things you'd like to say to ed tech companies? Do you feel like they're meeting, like you just talked about some ed tech companies that are providing that phenomena for educators so they can teach standards, but are are there things that you would like to give them advice for? Because you've worked with so many, like, do you feel like they're talking to educators correctly or like, what's the best advice you could give them for either their reaching educators or their product itself? Because so many ed tech companies there, they really can make some choices and they, they get into that featureitis too. So how do they know they're reaching educators in the way they want to be reached and they're providing what they need that creates the most value? These are really big questions that I know you work with them on and it's very data informed too. So how can you simplify this answer into a couple of minutes, your life work? <laughs> well, you know, if just starting out, the best thing to do is listen to teachers. And I don't just mean when they call in for a tech support call or those kinds of things, but specifically setting time aside to do in-depth interviews and listen 
to teachers where you're asking questions about the biggest problems that they're facing that your your product might solve. You mentioned featureitis and that kind of made me smile because um, I think in product development side of things, that's kind of where we get stuck. Oh, wouldn't it be cool if we did this feature or we could do this one really quickly and add that on and those types of things. But taking the time to listen to educators is super important. And it needs to be dedicated time with your product and market development in mind, as opposed to, I listen to them when I'm at a conference or those kinds of things. The other thing that I recommend to people, because everybody's on budgets, right? So if you don't have a budget for that, if you don't have a budget for in-depth interviews or qualitative research or that kind of stuff, I'll tell you, social media is a great place to be a listening channel, right? So in addition to being out there and talking to educators, stopping and creating a following of, I have a lot of superintendents on my Twitter feed, and I use it as a listening channel to really understand what it is they're dealing with, how they help one another, what advice they give to one another. And so if you don't have a budget at all, go out and curate your social media so that you are following people that you want to listen to. And then really think about what are they saying their problems are? How can you provide a service that fits that? What, what are they saying about competitive products? What are they saying about things that work that get them all excited? Or sometimes there was a superintendent really early at the beginning of the pandemic who became very popular on Twitter because she had a very strong opinion about about a Ted vendors calling up and pitching during those days when the pandemic was new. We didn't know what was going on. Um, I remember that. (laughs) Yeah. But those are fascinating things to listen to because when educators get emotional about something, they are telling you exactly what they think because they're talking to their peers. And it's a great way to just listen. So that gives you some change. And then, you know, on the other side of things, if you have the budget for it, if you've got really important questions you need to have answered before you develop a product, but quantitative research is also great. And I know you've had a a couple of people on here who've talked about the work that can be done in quantitative, but I always like to give my clients this breadth of, if you can't do anything, listen on social. Yeah, and um, I think what you're saying too is what we're also looping back to the students is be curious. Be curious always, be a learner always, and find ways to ask questions you don't know answers to, or you may have assumptions to, but you're not sure that they're right. And by the way, any assumption we make are 100% not right for all the time. It always changes. Educators' needs change because your audience is changing and also the situation around them is always constantly changing too. So what, what I hear you say, Daylene, is like, you know, emphasize listening, but there's a variety of ways you can do it. You can do it on a very low budget where you're just taking 30 minutes out of your week, maybe in eventually 15 minutes out of your day and scheduling it in your calendar and saying, I'm going to listen to educators on Twitter, or I'm going to listen to educators on Instagram or even TikTok, depending on what genre you're, you're in. But I, there is some science fun stuff going 
going on in TikTok right now with educators too. So I'm seeing that, but then you can also just get old school too. I mean, I remember saying, Hey, if I'm a leader, let's pick up the phone. And my goal is just to spend a half an hour every week and schedule a phone call, like an old school phone call with one of your people and just have a deep conversation with them. Cause yeah. you, we make so many assumptions about the needs we're making. And then engineers get very excited about features, right? <laughs> right. The other thing I tell my clients too is, is let's say you want to talk to a lot of teachers. You want to talk to 10 or 15. Um, one of the things that we work with ed tech companies on is saying, okay, which titles do you want to target or the particular states you want to target? And we'll go through and set up all of those phone calls for you. And we lead the discussion and all you have to do is show up. You show up and listen and you can, you can add questions in there and you get a transcript at the end and you get a report at the end. But the nice part is sometimes for educators that are on, um, I need to back up. The nice part is that for ed tech companies, they just have to show up and then it feeds into, okay, all of these other things are going on in my decision-making. And a lot of time they can walk away from that kind of qualitative research with answers to their questions that let them move forward with product development or market development. Yes, yes. So why don't we jump into the world of equity. And there is no good transition for that. But I, I did hear you embed it into your answers when we talked about the pandemic and shifts forward. And when we were talking about, hey, what are the things you're passionate about? What would you like to talk about? You brought up this stat that really floored me. And I don't think I've heard it. I've heard something similar. But you said 76% of educators say that their district is prioritizing equitable access to high quality instruction for the 2022-2023 school year. So they're saying, an overwhelming majority of them are saying they're prioritizing equitable access. But like, really, what does that mean? Is that like all ed tech companies saying, hey, we're student centered, and like, we don't really see that follow through like what what do you think it means to ed tech providers and then how can educators really jump into this and provide feedback so they so we actually do it and we don't leave people behind well let's start with that number for just a second so the people that we reached were science stem and computer science admin folks so they, so we were really talking to people who were at the district level. We did have some teachers response, respond to that, but the majority of what we were trying to get were the district level leaders. So I think that that's an important thing to understand because I think that they are also more likely to be aware of what are the initiatives that are going on. So it surprised me that it was that high. So that was kind of an interesting thing. What is it? But I had the same question that you do is what does that actually mean? Does that mean our district wrote something up that here's our position on equity and they posted it on the web? And what does that actually mean? So it's important to that equity was framed in the sense of equitable access to high quality materials and not equal access. So equal access means they all get to do this same lab 
all of them get exactly what they need. Equitable access means that, let's say that you've got a kid in the classroom, Daylene can't see. She's got bad eyesight and when she's doing certain activities, she needs, you know, a bigger font or she needs more time or those types of things. Whereas somebody else in the classroom, maybe, um, maybe there's a student who is on an IEP or a 504 plan and they specifically say they need more time or more distract, more time or a location where they won't have as many distractions. So what this means to EdTech vendors is when we create products, we have to keep in mind that teachers have to customize everything. If they've got a kid that's a tag kid that already knows this content, they might want to do something that's more of a challenge for them. But the, really the key for ed tech providers is working in as much flexibility and as many features that allow teachers to save time and customize for different students. So here's, Go I was ahead, just going to ask you the follow-up to that is, do you actually see that happening? Do you see signals to show that the ed tech companies are moving that way for those accommodations to happen? I do see some companies that are doing a really good job of that. They don't always communicate it in their marketing as well. But, but that's another thing too, is we asked a question that I like to call the the Oxford comma question, because only half of people saw it one way and the other half saw it the other way. And that was whether or not it's important in the materials and in the marketing to show students learning with diverse backgrounds. And it was split. It was like 50, 50. It was, and then I left an area for comments and I heard a lot of things like that doesn't matter. Uh, or on the other end, I would hear things of representation always matters. If you come to me and you've got a great product, but your marketing materials are only showing um, white males, then I'm going to think that that's representative of your company and your materials. And so we heard both sides. It was really kind of an interesting thing. But I always tell ed tech companies, you are better off having your products look like they could fit into the Chicago Public School District, the school district in Montana, one in Miami. You're going to have broader reach if you do that because representation does matter and it matters to students that scientists and engineers, um, but just successful people are represented that look like them. Yes. And I think for the ed tech folk listening, sometimes you're, you're probably like hitting yourself over your head. You're like, yes, that happens to me. It's kind of like a double-edged sword is that if you do show a lot of diversity, some people don't care or they don't, they don't have that as something they're, they're looking for actively. But if you don't, um, they really don't see themselves and their students really 
succeeding with your product. So you really have to make sure that you're thinking about your target audience as much as possible and their challenges. And, and do they look like and represent your audience? And do they does your product really create solutions for their immediate needs too? And I think you talked about that earlier about that's why you need to listen and constantly listen and try to signal up. Maybe there's new challenges around all of this, but equity and accessibility are always going to be something that's going to be needed in the future. I could see even just more of a need, if not continuously, but not just in the product, but in your marketing. So many ed tech companies don't even have accessible social media. What does that mean? That means captions. That means really making sure that can screen readers read this or is this full of hashtags? So uh, something that we're really passionate about, we could talk all day about equity and accessibility. Daylene, if you have extra resources around that, we can put them in the show notes too. Sure. Um, and then you, we'll tell you how to reach Daylene after this too, and you can talk to her all day about this stuff. She's very passionate, very knowledgeable, as you can tell. I'd like to end this podcast, unfortunately, but with a couple of really fun questions. Okay. Um, you are working with lots of companies. You worked with them in the pandemic. You have your own business. It is exponentially hard, I'm sure, all of the time. We help support each other. I know hard, how hard it is to grow your own business and really lead with joy and passion and what gives you that and how do you make a specific impact in the STEM industry. But with all of these long days and you, these challenges, what gives you that pep in your step? When you're feeling like super down, if you just go and do this or you read this or you think this, this gives you that extra step to just keep going. Are there things that inspire you that always inspire you? Hmm. I would say two things. Sometimes I just have to get up from my desk and go outside and play with my dogs. They always remind me that life can be a joy and that we have to just kind of get out, move outside and just have fun. And I have two golden retrievers and, and one of them um, we call the chief happiness officer at Catapultex because she truly is always happy. And she makes everybody that comes and visits happy. And, and she's that kind of jolt for it in my day. Uh, the other thing that I really enjoy doing is reading. And I, I typically have a fiction book going and a nonfiction book going sometimes at the same time, depending on what I need. And I just really enjoy um, writers who expose me to new things and help me see things from a different perspective or help, help teach me. Um, I'm reading a book right now called forces of nature, the women who change science. And it's, it's on my, my nonfiction side of things. And it looks at the women who helped big discoveries and it's so fascinating because a lot of times there were scientists who get the credit for discovering something, but they couldn't have done it without this team of people who helped them. And so I'm just enjoying listening to women's stories from, from years past and what they did to contribute to science is just amazing to me. And that really inspires me. It really inspires me to start to see these 
stories being told about um, people who had big achievements but weren't necessarily recognized. Yes, yes. And it makes me excited, but also makes me sad at the same time. Sometimes, you know, like if, if we would just would have approached it with that lens back in the day, we might have been a different place, women. At this point. It, you know, it's true. There's also on LinkedIn, there is, I believe his first name is Ernest, but his last name is Krim. It's C-R-I-M. And he is an educator who teaches black history. And he is also something that really inspires me because he tells stories that didn't make it into the history books. Some of them were passed down from oral traditions. Some of them uh, were stories that just don't get noticed. And it's the same thing. He, those kinds of stories of starting to shine a spotlight on people who weren't represented in the past is very inspiring to me. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Daylene. I feel like we're cutting this short because we could talk a lot more in depth on all of these things. But if you do want to reach out to Daylene, she is the most humble, selfless, collaborative person. You can reach her on Twitter. Is it at catapult underscore X? It is. Yes. Okay. And then do you have your website? Um, my website is catapult hyphen X.com. Um, and then there's the best of STEM awards too, for those ed tech companies out there that, uh, want to enter that it's just best of STEM And I'm on LinkedIn a lot too. So look me up on LinkedIn. I post a lot there as well. Great. Well, thank you again, Daylene. I, I thank feel you, Alana. blessed to have these conversations with you. I always approach these as a learner because I have, you know, far above and beyond anything I know in STEM and to hear what you're excited about, what you advise ed tech companies, how educators can really navigate all of these things that are expected of them was just really, truly helpful and, and enlightening to me. So I, I thank you. And I want to thank everyone for joining us. Um, you can access this episode's show notes at leoneconsultinggroup.com. So that's two G's, leoneconsultinggroup.com backslash 28. Two eight, like two times four is eight. Um, we'll have detailed notes. So what we like to do is highlight the main points that we talked about, just in case you want to skim them. But we also put in great resources. So anything that Daylene talked about, we'll put in all of the links to the resources and she might provide some extra ones in there too. So go ahead and check out the show notes. And if you like what you're listening to and it inspires you on a practical educator level or in an ed tech professional level, please go ahead and give us a review. We'd love to be able to share this wisdom with others. So thank you again. We will see you all next time on all things marketing and education. Take care. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. If you liked what you heard and want to dive deeper, you can visit leoneconsultinggroup.com backslash podcasts for all show notes, links, and freebies mentioned in each episode. And we always love friends, so please connect with us on Twitter at Leone Group. If you enjoyed today's show, go ahead and click the subscribe button to be the first one notified when our next episode is released. We'll see you next week on all things marketing and education.